Welcome to the Ocean Hills Podcast. Our hope is that today's message would help you connect more deeply with God and with others. If you would like more information on what is happening in the Ocean Hills community, check out our website at oceanhills.org or download the Ocean Hills app. If you are encouraged by our ministry and would like to partner with us financially, you can give through your mobile device by texting Ocean Hills to 77977. We hope you enjoy this message. Today's message is part of our series, Where Is It Written? We've been looking the last few weeks about the authority of Scripture and God's Word is a seed that is planted in our hearts and how we respond, how we show up on Sunday to receive God's Word really matters, whether our heart is open or closed, whether it's soft and tender or it's hard and unresponsive. And uh, today I uh, have a 40-year friend, John Jenks. We were, went to seminary together at Fuller and at North Park. We're ordained together. Uh, and uh, I got to come to Santa Barbara after seminary, and you ended up here after 35 years. You eventually <laughs> got here, but uh, now John is one of the campus pastors over at uh, Samarkand, which is one of our covenant retirement communities. John has writ- uh, recently written a book called Yes, She Can, Biblical and Practical Reflections on Women in Leadership in the church. And I've asked John to uh, speak today on this talk topic of women in leadership um, in the context of this series on scripture and the authority of God's word. And one of the reasons this is so important, I can, I've shared this before, but my wife Natalie and I have lived in this town for 37 years and I have more than once been uh, chastised spoken down to, accosted on the street and said, you're that pastor, you guys have women pastors on your staff, don't you read the Bible, it's in black and white, women are supposed to be silent in the church, men are supposed to be in charge, dot, 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 dot. And there may be some of you this morning that were raised in a way that the lens that you interpreted scripture, the way you were taught, um, was maybe from that, that perspective. And John is coming this morning uh, to just share God's word with us. And I think to, for some of us, it's going to be to, to, to look at scripture with a new lens and look at your story. And I just want you to know I'm praying that, that today God would move in your heart and in my heart as John leads. So, John, thanks for writing the book. It is available out front. It's not free, but it is inexpensive. Ten bucks. Ten bucks, man. <laughs> that's a bargain. Yeah. It's usually 30, but today it's ten bucks. All right. So there you go. Ten bucks out there. Let's sell it out. Let's welcome John Jenks. Thank you, bro. Thank you. Yeah, I love you. Well, good morning, Ocean Hills. Uh, Great to be here. And this is not just the guest speaker. This is my home church. And my wife and I are thrilled to be part of what God is doing here at Ocean Hills. Um, I'm excited for this opportunity to share with you today on a topic that I believe is of vital importance. It's been said that the task of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And that may happen today. We'll see. But I want you to know that wherever you might be in your own life situation, in your faith journey, wherever you might be in your past or present uh, thoughts or experience around the question of women and leadership in the church, 
I hope and pray that you will be challenged, but also encouraged. And as that happens, we trust God will meet all of us. And here's the question of the day. This is what we're going to think about. Does the Bible teach us that women should be restricted from some areas of service and leadership in the church because of their gender? Or does the Bible teach us that women are called and gifted by God to serve and lead in the same way as men without any restriction based on their gender? You know, how people in the church answer this question will influence the life and the culture and the ministry of every church, every day, everywhere. And it will also shape the life and relationships and faith and experience of every individual in this room. Before we dive into this, I want to just make three quick comments. The first is my answer to the question is yes, she can. Uh, I believe the Bible, the message of the Bible, the message of Jesus, and the message of the gospel itself moves us to understand women are called and gifted by God to serve and to lead in the same way as men and alongside men as partners, not as followers of men within a hierarchy of male power and authority. No restriction on anyone's service in the church based on gender should exist. And this has absolutely nothing to do with conforming to any extreme or secular form of feminism. It has everything to do with conforming and aligning our lives with the truth and the message of the scriptures and of Jesus and his gospel. Second thing I want to say is I know that there are many wonderful Christian people who answer this question differently than I do. And they say, no, she can't, in a sense. I have very good friends who believe that. Uh, and they draw a line of restriction for women that says, in some areas of leadership, you're, those are just off limits for you. I, I believe in the Bible. They believe in the Bible. I love Jesus. They love Jesus. We both say the Apostles' Creed together. Uh, we have a ton of common ground. But in this area, we do have significant difference in perspective. And I just want to recognize this. And I want to say that while I'm very passionate and have strong conviction uh, about this, I really have genuine respect and love for so many who think differently than I do. And again, many of them are my friends. But if that describes you this morning, if you may be already a little bit nervous about where we're going here, I just want to thank you for considering what we're going to talk about today. And uh, my thoughts may stretch you, but I would invite you to continue to listen with an open mind. And the third quick introductory comment is this. I'm available. Uh, I mean, I live here in Santa Barbara. You are my people. This is my home church. Uh, This is a big topic. I can only cover so much ground. But uh, I'm available to share a phone call, uh, to get together for coffee. Uh, If you're in a small group and you want to turn one of your gatherings into a book club on this, read the book. You can invite the author. I'll show up and we'll talk about it and learn together. Uh, If you're not interested in the book, you don't care about it, you still want to get together, we'll have coffee and I'll show you all kinds of pictures of the cutest one-year-old granddaughter that you've ever seen. And we'll just get to know each other a little bit better as friends. But um, my email's in the back of the book. You can get my cell number from John or Jono and uh, would be happy to connect uh, anywhere along the line and uh, talk about this further. All right, I want to share four primary reasons why this question of the day is so important. I'm going to spend most of the time on the first one, given the theme of this series we're in. And it's this. Uh, Answering this question will help us think carefully about how we can best interpret and understand the Bible. Exploring the question of women in leadership in some ways gives us an opportunity to, to have a case study on how to explore the scriptures on any topic because it's tricky and there are different perspectives. And how do we wrestle with this? How can we be excellent students of the Bible? 
Well, first, I may be preaching to the choir on this, but let me just say, why is the Bible so important? Isaiah says this, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is inspired by God. It is useful for, to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Do you want a source of truth and reality in your life that is reliable and solid? It doesn't shift with the winds of every cultural movement. Do you want a source of wisdom that can shape your life in beautiful and good ways, that can equip you for good works? Well, then you want to pay attention to the scripture. But how can we best interpret and understand the Bible? Well, here are several principles to help us discern the Bible's message accurately. Helpful principles on interpreting the scripture right there. And it's also important, of course, to study the scriptures in community. But whether you're reading or alone, these principles, I think, can be very helpful. The first is this. Be open. Be self-aware. Be humble. You know, we all have our own story. We know that. And, and over the course of our life, we all develop a filter, if you will. I'll say like a lens, where as we go through our day, we, we interpret certain experiences, things that we hear, and we, we filter those through our own life and our own story, maybe pain or joys that are part of our life. And that begins to kind of uh, allow us to, to sort of interpret things, sometimes in a good way, and sometimes, though, we can get misguided in different ways. Maybe a negative way of saying this is we're all biased. <laughs> uh, it's hard to be objective. But having a filter, friends, is not bad. It's really inevitable. We just need to be careful that the lens we look through does not determine what we see. And when it comes to Scripture, we want to make sure that our filter does not shade or distort what the Bible is actually saying. Acknowledging this and asking God to help us uh, see the Scriptures is really helpful when we open the Bible every single time. We also need to remember that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written by dozens of authors over a period of hundreds of years in a variety of cultural, historical settings and moments in history. Uh, there is the reality that we simply must acknowledge. There is a distinction between what the Bible was written, that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. And we have to ask, what was the intended message of any portion of scripture for the original audience? What was the author trying to get at? What was going on in that moment? Focusing on this question is what some biblical scholars call the practice of exegesis. This involves understanding the context of the given passage we're looking at. What was happening in history there? What were the cultural sensitivities? It helps to remember the dynamics of language because a word in one language can mean something very different in another language. And, and words meaning can change over time. And what were the specific dynamics that people were addressing and wrestling with when that was written? When we pay attention to the original intent and meaning of any passage, we have the best opportunity to accurately understand it, but then also apply it in our lives today. Now, there's several other principles that we can talk about, and I want to take a quote. This is the only quote I'm going to give you from my book, but I'm going to give you this one. Uh, we want to think about these other principles. Let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. Remember the big when interpreting the small. Don't turn a specific temporary and local word into a universal and timeless command or prohibition. Beware of isolating one or two sentences and trying to interpret them literally. Uh, you know, of course, 
um, we need to kind of recognize that, that sometimes what's there is actually very true. It is literal. It's clear. But there are some passages, and we'll look at a couple of them, where it's not that simple. Here we go. It says this. Remember the big when interpreting the small. As we look to Scripture to help us interpret Scripture, we must pay attention to the larger themes of biblical revelation and stay alert to the progress of revelation. This principle helps us avoid the problematic approach of isolating any small portion of Scripture or an individual verse and building a massive position from it while minimizing or ignoring other passages that speak to the same issue. As we look at any individual verse or passage of Scripture, we need to remember the preponderance of biblical evidence on any given topic, the big message of God, God's redemptive work in history, and the central message of the gospel of Jesus. We do well to integrate and understand each verse within the larger section it is a part of, in the context of the original book it is in, and within the Bible of, as a whole. When we do this, we avoid, quote, proof texting, unquote, our way to a position where we focus on one or two texts, but don't do the important work of seeing what the whole Bible is saying. Here's an example of uh, what we can talk about. This is probably the most common verse that people who think differently on this topic than I do will say, well, what about 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12? It says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Some people hear that verse, sounds like John Allen, you've heard a few of them. I have too. And they'll say, how can you miss it? It's right there in black and white, as clear as day. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. It's right there. Women should not have strong leadership positions in the church. They should not be pastors. They shouldn't have, have authority over men. Well, oftentimes in those conversations, I like to ask, let me just ask you, do you interpret other portions of Scripture like you're interpreting 1 Timothy chapter 2 here? Are you consistent in the way you do that? Well, let's take a look at a couple passages and ask if we'd like to do this in Matthew chapter 5, 27 to 29. And I'm putting these together with Timothy so we can just ask the question, do we interpret both of these the same way, in a real literal way? Matthew says this, or Jesus says this in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Guys, do you want this to be the only and final word on how to deal with sexual lust? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. What about this one? Matthew 6. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Is this the final or only word on prayer? Does this say we, the only time we should pray is to go alone? Any group prayer, out of bounds. Or what about Luke 14 when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, Jesus, you mean if I'm going to follow you, I'm supposed to hate my parents? Is that the message of the Bible? Well, I'm just trying to illustrate the dynamic that that these statements need to be interpreted in a way not to take away their meaning, but to get at their meaning. This, in saying all this, I'm not saying that the Bible has a series of contradictory messages within the message of Scripture. There's a great unity to the message of Scripture and the gospel. But friends, these are just a few examples. But let's remember, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. 
It has eternal relevance, but it also has what some people call historical particularity. And we need to think about what was the original message to the original audience, what was happening in that setting. And so that can help us get at the real message. And just a super quick comment on 1 Timothy chapter 2. Language is important. Uh, the, when Paul uses this word authority in this verse in chapter 2, it is the only time this Greek word for authority, authentane, was ever used in scripture or by Paul. That would seem to suggest that Paul must have had a specific thing in mind to address a specific situation. And in fact, I think he did. Uh, there's a lot we don't know, but here's what we know about the word authentane. It means to have authority in a domineering way, even in a violent way. Paul was talking about not normal, healthy, day-to-day -day authority and, uh, in the life of the church or people's relationship. He was talking about avoid a domineering or even violent, abusive way of ruling over other people. I appreciate these comments by Klein Snodgrass and Dave Scholler. The prohibition in 1 Timothy 2 was required by conditions in that time and place. These words should not be used as a universal prohibition of teaching by women. And David Scholler, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 is not a timeless, transcultural absolute for the place of women in the church, but rather it is a specific qualified response to a specific situation. We need to remember the big when we're interpreting the small. So let me just share this. What is the big message of scripture when it comes to women in leadership in the church? And just for a few moments, let me start with Genesis chapter one, two, and three. In the beautiful description of God's creating this wonderful world, it clearly says that men and women are both created fully and equally in the image of God. There is no lesser dimension of being made in God's image for women. There is the presence of no hierarchy of male authority, man over women, in the creation account. Now, some will disagree with me, and they find reasons to say, well, no, this is why men are more in charge than women, and men should be in more leadership than women. I believe that's a misunderstanding. And some of it is rooted in, in a misunderstanding of what happens in Genesis 3:16. Again, men and women are equally made in God's image, and they're fully and equally called to serve and have dominion over God's creation. And one person said to me, you know, if the Lord Almighty told women they can have dominion over the earth, it's probably okay if they can pastor a church or preach a sermon or lead once in a while. <laughs> well, Genesis chapter 3. At this point in the story, things have gotten difficult. It starts out where God creates this amazing world, and it's good, good, good. You see this all the time. And then it, in uh, chapter 131, he says it is very good, wonderful. But we know that's not the whole story. Darkness comes, sin comes, death comes. And God begins to talk to Adam and Eve about the, the consequences of this. And in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this. He says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. I'm just going to put this out there. I believe this is one of the most tragically misinterpreted scriptures in the whole Bible. This is not a prescriptive statement for what God wants. This is not a description of what he thinks is best for humanity. This is a description of the consequence of sin and the fall and the curse. This is a description of what breaks God's heart. This is a description of the entrance of patriarchy into the world 
where men have a ruling position over women that is harsh and it flows out of the consequence of sin. What did women in the Bible do is another important question to ask with the clear calling and blessing of God. Well, if you look at the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, there are multiple examples of women who were clearly called and gifted and powered to serve and to lead, oftentimes leading men. And in doing that, it led to great blessings. Uh, we can think about the woman Deborah. Read Judges chapter 4 and 5. Uh, amazing story. Deborah was the judge of, for the nation of Israel for a period of years. Uh, before they had kings, when Saul came, they had judges. And judges were like the number one leader in the entire nation offering judicial leadership, administrative leadership. Deborah offered military leadership. There was a, a, a male general who said, it's time to go to battle, but I'm not going unless Deborah comes with me. Read it. It's, where is it written? It's Judges 4 and 5. Deborah is the leader for the nation of Israel, and her leadership led to great blessings. I've had many friends who view this whole question differently than I do, honestly say, I have no idea what to do with Deborah. Well, God said to Deborah, yes, you can. I need you. I want you. Here we go. Uh, at the same time, we can see Miriam and the prophet Huldah, Ruth and Esther in the Old Testament and others were used by God to minister to God's people, to lead God's people, to inspire God's people in a variety of different ways. Uh, read Romans chapter 16. This is part of the big message of scripture. The apostle Paul is concluding this uh, letter to the Romans and he, he lists... A, bunch of people, I think it's 15 or 20 different people are identified as co-laborers, as wonderful servants and leaders in the church. Many of them are women, specifically Phoebe. Phoebe is the one who is a deacon. This is a leader in the church. She's clearly identified as such. And also she's the one who brought the letter to Rome. Uh, a lot of biblical scholars think there were at least four or five little house churches in Rome at the time. When the letter arrived, it, it, they didn't have multiple copies. They had the copy, Right. And Phoebe was the one who would take it to these different places. And she, as the bringer of the letter in that culture, would always be the one who would read it. So these gatherings of early believers in the Church of Rome would have Phoebe up there reading the letters. And then she became the first commentator for Romans. How's that? Because in that culture, whoever brought the letter read the letter, but they were also responsible to offer instruction and clarification if anyone had any questions about the letter. Now, after reading the entire letter of Romans, do you think anybody in that house church might have said, you know, there's something I don't quite get. Could you help me here? Well, Phoebe was the instructive voice for the letter of Romans that Paul sent to that congregation. Uh, think about Junia. Junia is identified in Romans chapter 16 as an apostle. She is a clear leader. And uh, some people try to change this and they say, well, Junia is not really a feminine name, but the vast majority of biblical scholarship says you can't get around it. Junia clearly was a woman and she was clearly an apostle. Priscilla and Lydia were also strong leaders. To understand the big picture of women in leadership of the church, we need to think about Jesus himself, of course. Luke chapter 3 describes how women were traveling him with him. This was kind of unusual for a male Jewish rabbi, but this was happening. It was a normal thing in the flow of his life and ministry. In John chapter 4, he meets this Samaritan woman at the well. You may be familiar with that story. And, and it was unusual for Jesus as Jew to even interact with a Samaritan. There was so much racial and ethnic hostility and tension between those groups. But Jesus welcomes this woman. 
And it was also in that culture at that time, pretty unusual for Jesus to even sit down and publicly talk with a woman. But he does. When his disciples come back and see him in that setting, they're all confused. Why are you talking to this woman? This is just not done. What's Jesus doing? He's, he's saying a new day is showing up here. I have a different vision for women than you do. And, and this woman matters to me. And I believe in her as I ask her to believe in me. And so he shares the longest single one-on-one -on -one conversation we can find in the Gospels with an individual with this woman. And as he significantly identifies himself as the Messiah to her. And then she begins to have her eyes open. She goes and tells people in her community about Jesus. Many come to faith. Jesus didn't say, hey, before you go, wait a minute, get a man to go get the message out to people. No, he said, go. And she did. And she was touched by the Lord and many came to faith because she said, hey, there's the Messiah has arrived. Well, we can also look at Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42. Maybe you're familiar. Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus for a meal. Um, this is a passage that is well known for the, the way in which people observe the different temperaments, perhaps, of Mary and Martha. Mary is identified as a woman who is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's in the kitchen getting the food ready. All of a sudden, there's a, a question, well, Mary, why don't you come and help Martha with the food? And Jesus says, no, Mary has chosen what is good, what is better. And we sometimes think, well, this is all about, you know, who does what in the house and why doesn't Mary help with the uh, meal? The tension in the room centered around the fact that Jesus was a male Jewish rabbi. And he was welcoming this woman to sit at his feet. To sit at the feet of a rabbi was a very technical phrase in that time and culture. Paul talks about this when he talks about his own spiritual journey in the book of Acts, how he sat at the feet of his rabbi. So, so Mary sitting at the feet of, his rab of this rabbi is really a, a life-altering, big-time change because Jesus is welcoming this woman to be his disciple. Well, women are disciples all the time of Jesus today. Yeah, great. That's because Jesus <laughs> welcomed that. But there is no historical record prior to the arrival of Jesus of any woman ever being a disciple of a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus is welcoming that in this time. Mary and Mary in Matthew 28 uh, come to the tomb after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the angel says, he is not here. And the angel says, go and tell others, tell the, you know, the, the men that, that he is not here. He's risen. Well, folks, this is about the biggest news this world has ever had, right? Who does God put in charge of getting the message out? I don't think that was done accidentally. This is too big of a deal to say, well, it was just sort of sloppily handled by our sovereign God. No, God took these two women and said, you need to go tell the others. And they go proclaim that Jesus is alive. There's other cultural sensitivities in that dynamic that make it astounding that God would choose these women to do this, but he does, and that is deeply, deeply significant. Uh, one more passage of Scripture that can help us think about the big picture from Acts chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. Uh, let me read this for us. It says this. Then this, this, by the way, the setting, the church is coming alive. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He spent time with his followers and then he's ascended into heaven. Now there's all these people are together and uh, there's some chaos. The spirit of God is moving. People are speaking in tongues and, and, and it's just kind of crazy. What's happening? 
Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see here was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. Now, of all the things that Peter could say at this momentous moment as the church of Jesus Christ is coming to life, what is he going to say? Of all the prophecies you could have picked out to highlight, which one does he come to? Starting at verse 17, in the last days, join me. Let's read this together. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit among all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. Clearly, something super duper important is happening here, right? And Peter is saying, okay, just so you know, Men and women, women and men, we are all called to be involved in sharing the word of God. To prophesy was to share a word of God for the people of God and for the world. And there was an instructive dimension to this, an inspiring dimension to this. And so the, the, the message here from the book of Acts and the big message of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation declares that gender equality is a reality that is rooted in creation. It is a biblical value to celebrate. It is modeled and endorsed by Jesus, and it was coming alive in the early church. Now, in all this, I want to just say quickly, don't be discouraged when you read the Bible and think something doesn't quite seem to immediately make a lot of sense, okay? Um, you don't have to go to seminary to be a good student of the Bible. When we study in a community, when we study it carefully and thoughtfully and prayerfully and humbly, as we do that individually as well, uh, we can get this and we need to get it because what is written in this book is so incredibly valuable. But I hope um, these principles will help you as you engage in the scripture. Uh, there's another reason why this question is so important and it's this, how I, view, how I view people is of supreme importance. You see, how I answer the question will shape how I view and then treat women. If you're a follower of Christ, you know this. People really matter. We're created in God's image. Christ died for every one of us. And at the same time, relationships are precious. 2 Corinthians 5.16, we see that when we encounter Jesus, we begin to see people in a different way. Jesus begins to give us the lens and the filter for who am I looking at? It says this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. Now, now, some people will say this. Yes, women have real equality with men. We honor them. But they are also different, and they have different roles that restrict women from serving as leader in the church. Women, men and women complement each other within a hierarchy of male authority and leadership. Now, people with this perspective, sometimes, you may or may not be familiar with this, they call themselves complementarians. Uh, people with my perspective sometimes are described as egalitarians. Well, my response to, the, uh, to this mindset for the complementarians is this. I'm a complementarian too. I've figured out that men and women are different, okay? We're not identical. 
Uh, we do complement one another. I believe in gender complementarity without hierarchy. And this is why here at Ocean Hills Covenant, we have women leaders. We have women that preach and pastors and women on our leadership team. We need the voice and the presence of women in all of our circles of leadership because we're different. That's how we can complement each other. Friends, we can't complement each other if we're not in the same room and we don't listen to each other. We have to be at the same table. Now, I'm going to be really strong here, but I wanted to say this, and I want to say it respectfully, but I want to say that what some people call living with complementary roles is really a form of theological patriarchy, placing women in subjugation to men. And this is tragic, all the more tragic when it was justified in the name of biblical Christianity. This perspective that restricts women from leadership shapes our vision of women in a deeply damaging way. We can't always see that. We don't oftentimes believe that, but I believe it is true because here is the mes message that women receive when they hear a church say, no, you can't because of your gender. What they hear is, you are not as valuable, you are not as capable, and you are not as trustworthy as men. And we don't oftentimes think about it that way, but I would submit to you that that, that is the, the underlying message that can come through. And not everybody, I know women who say, I don't believe that's the case, but, but I really believe that that is the message that begins to shape how we view people. And this is tragic, it's damaging, and it's a fundamentally flawed message because the beautiful and the inspiring message of the Bible tells us that men and women are equally created in God's image, fully and equally called and gifted for life and mission together, serving side by side, not with men in the front and women behind. Third reason, why is this question of the day so important? It will shape the culture and ministry of the church. And I'm just going to take about one minute on this one. And you can read my book. The last third of the book covers this. But, but the restrictive position creates more confusion. It reduces ministry impact in a church. It causes real pain. It establishes a dangerous power imbalance in the very culture and structure of a church. And in that, it elevates the risk of domestic, sexual, and power abuse. Um, when children grow up in a church culture where the message is leadership is determined by gender, not by gifts, calling, confusion and pain becomes very, very real. Now, I am not saying, friends, that every church that restricts women from ministry has no fruitful ministry, has no good people, that God's not at work at all in that church. God works in churches that come from all kinds of different places. But we want to try to align ourselves with God's vision and the biblical message. And this is what we're talking about today. But I believe these practical consequences, if you will, are very, very real. When a church develops uh, and even idealizes a form of theological patriarchy where men are women to be the only one, men are deemed to be the only ones that are capable and trustworthy to lead, this creates a dangerous power imbalance that's embedded in this church. And any sociology person will tell you that when a, any organization or group or community has a structured power imbalance on certain people in the group, the people that have less power are going to be more vulnerable to be exploited and to experience abuse in all kinds of different ways. 
Friends, when a church says, yes, she can, it enhances the potential to have a healthy church culture and a more vibrant ministry. Well, friends, the final reason why this question before us today, I believe, is so important is this. And in some ways, I believe this is the biggest reason this is so important. It will help us understand and experience and share the gospel itself. Matthew chapter 1. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, the gospel means the good news, the proclamation of the good news. What is the good news? Uh, the good news is, in a sense, the 30,000-foot view of, of, of this world that we live in, of our history, our present, and our future. It's sort of the, the big fat story, the big picture, and we think, what is really going on? The, the gospel addresses all the biggest questions of life that are part of the, this big framework, this new lens. We start to look at life, our own identity, other people, ministry, suffering, hope, all these things we start to look through the lens. I'm printing out glasses here. Uh, through the gospel, the story of who God is, what his dream is for us, what he desires for us. Jesus connects the, the gospel with the kingdom of God coming near. I love Dallas Willard's description of the kingdom of God as the range of God's effective will. It's sort of when you see something happen that God wants to have happen, that's an extension of the kingdom of God. God's rule, his reign, what he wants to have happen is happening. Uh, Scott McKnight is an author who says that the kingdom of God is God's dream for the world unfolding. God's kingdom has come near in Christ and continues to expand as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we become part of the answer to that prayer. The gospel itself begins with this step of saying, what a start. Genesis chapter 1, God created a good world. A beautiful world. You see this in the story of creation. But friends, you and I, we can sense it and we see it. Is there anyone here who would say, I've never experienced any dimension of goodness in this world? I suspect that all of us have. I mean, we experience that when we look at God's creation. We're standing at the edge of the Pacific Ocean here in Santa Barbara. When we're on a mountaintop. When we look at the beauty of God's creation, we go, wow, this is really good. But we also experience that when we have inter connections with other people, where there's love, there's intimacy, there's connection. We go, this, this feels so right. This is so important. We experience this when we uh, look at a beautiful piece of art. We experience this when we uh, experience uh, somebody and observe somebody doing something noble, living with integrity, having courageous acts of compassion. There's ways in which we, our breath is taken away. Even music, we go, oh, this feels so good. There's something about that that is good. It stirs our soul. Nature. I, I feel this way when I go to Los Agaves and have a great burrito. I mean, th this world is a good place. If people can make a burrito this good, there's got to be some goodness in this world, right? But we also know that, that that's not the whole story. But it is a good world. There was a, a, a woman who was teaching Sunday school to her little preschoolers in a church. And she told the story of creation. And she said, when God observed all he created, what do you think he said? And the little four-year-old girl raised her hand and said, I know what he said. Ta-da! And there you go. <laughs> we live in an amazing world. But we know that that's not the whole story. We also know that this world can be a mess. This world has been damaged by evil. 
death, addiction, evil, abuse, racism, corruption, greed, so much tragedy, so much pain, so much suffering. And I love the fact that the Bible says, let's be real. And the Bible talks a lot about this. And of course, this is a huge subject, but listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among you at that one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. It, it says here, this world is a mess. Let's be honest. Let's acknowledge it. But can you see that we don't have to live that way? Yes, you were dead in your transgressions, but you can live in a new way. I don't know about you, but I have never met one person in my life who said, you know, John, I see no room for improvement in this world. It's exactly the way I want it to be, right? This world is broken. There's darkness. There's damage. What a start, but what a mess. But what a hope we have in Christ. What an incredible hope that in Christ the world is restored for better. Ephesians 2, Paul goes on to say after talking about the mess, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved. Jesus Christ comes into history as God himself, offers his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection to give people like you and me an opportunity to come alive in Christ, to experience his restoring, redeeming grace, to say, what a hope that we have. We're not on our own. We haven't been abandoned. There is the kingdom of God that we can enter into. Jesus becomes the greatest change agent right at the center of every human heart that yields to him. But it doesn't stop there. And this is frankly where I think sometimes some Christians, they, they just sort of stop. The gospel is about getting me right with Jesus, right with God, so I can go to heaven someday and have some of God's blessings before I get there. But the gospel is much bigger than that. It's much greater than that. It's about the kingdom of God coming near. It's about God's people as they follow Christ being sent together to bring hope and healing to a broken and hurting world. It's about experiencing the way in which God is trying to do his work, not just in my life, but in our life, in the world's life. Think about this, Ephesians chapter 2, 15 and 16. What a vision. Paul is talking about how there was so much hostility between Jew and Gentile, but in Christ that can change. But by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Wow, that's a different vision for human life and community and relationships, isn't it? Thus making peace in one body and reconciling both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. What a vision, friends. What a vision for humanity. This is the gospel. 
This is the good news. This is the big fat story, as N.T. Wright says, for humanity and this world that we find ourselves in. And this really is, this is the best news ever. We begin to, to, to see the, the origins of our world, the purpose of our life. We begin to know that we're not in it alone. We can acknowledge it's a mess. We can figure out how we're complicit in the mess. But we can know there's a great hope in Christ for us, but also a hope in Christ for the world. Friends, this is the best news for you, but it is not only about you. Our gospel is too small when we just stop with, oh, what a hope. We have to see the bigger vision. The vision that Jesus connected with the gospel in the gospel of Mark, as we read. When Jesus said the kingdom of God was coming near, he was talking about all he wanted to do in bringing restoration and healing and redemption to communities and to the life we share together. The gospel is about God moving through his people to clean up the mess and create a more caring and a more just world. That's why here at Ocean Hills, when, when we have people raise money for water for Congo, that is bringing the kingdom of God more alive. That is essential component to the gospel. Right in the center of the gospel is a vision for a new humanity, a new vision for human relationships and life together that says there is no more room for patriarchy, racism, sexism, classism, nationalism that damage so many people in relationships and community. And we need to model that in the church and we need to offer it to the world. The gospel calls us into a new life as fully alive followers of Jesus, being sent together just like Mary and Mary, saying the tomb is empty, he is not here, he is alive. And because Jesus is alive, that changes everything. C.S. Lewis said, if Christianity is not true, it is of no importance. If Christianity is true, it is of ultimate importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. And Mary, and Mary knew this was of ultimate importance, and God used the voices of these women to begin to usher in the resurrection community. Friends, Jesus is on the move, and his followers, men and women, women and men, are sent together side by side, to bring hope and healing to a broken and hurting world. What a start. What a mess. What a hope. What a vision. What a gospel. What a Lord that we have. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. I want to invite the worship team to come up to... Lead us in a, a closing dimension of our worship. But Lord God, we come to you and we thank you for being such a wonderful God, a good God. You really are good all the time. And all the time you are good. But in this messed up world, we need your light to lead us, your truth to lead us, your gospel to lead us, your word to lead us. And may we follow all of that as we think about our life together as women and men, men and women our ministry together as women and men, men and women. And Lord God, may we be a community of faith that frees people up to serve you side by side. And Lord God, we pray, Lord God, that you would be at work in each of our lives to experience more of your grace and your love. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you, John Jenks. Thank you so much.
we're going to sing uh, a song or two, but I, I want to uh, create the opportunity. I'm thinking of a few people in the room right now. I'm thinking of maybe a woman who's in this room who maybe was raised with a different message that maybe, maybe this morning you're like, I am called and gifted, but I've never been allowed, never felt the permission to step into my calling uh, we're going to have a prayer team up here, and I want to invite you to come and receive a blessing and, and receive prayer. Uh, there's also some guys in the room, uh, and, and, and we have an opportunity to encourage the women in our lives, our sisters, our daughters, our wives, uh, that maybe have, have, have felt kind of a reluctance or a hesitancy to step into leadership spiritual leadership and if you're a guy god wants to use you to encourage women in this church and in the community and and maybe this morning you could come and and just say would you pray for me i'm, I'm not an encourager i haven't been that that kind of guy that spiritual encourager in the lives of women i want to be that come for prayer and then one one other maybe kind of person in the room today you walk in here maybe a skeptic of this message it's more like no this is the way it is maybe today you would come for prayer to say i want to begin the journey this is just a 30 minute 40 minute talk uh Maybe today you say, I want to really get aligned with God's heart, and I'm open, and I'm open to continue the conversation. I want you to come, and we're going to have the prayer team up here and receive prayer that God would, would touch you this morning. That makes sense? Let's stand together as we sing. Feel free to come for prayer. I'm going to have the prayer team come. <laughs> 